Praying is, you may have noticed, difficult. And praying well is very difficult. We've already seen that Jesus warns us not to pray to be seen or applauded by others. Right? He, last week, right, he warns against showy, attention-seeking forms of prayer, against the hypocrisy of the religious, the Pharisees. So here, continuing in Matthew 6, he takes up an additional problem in prayer. And then he gives us explicit direction on how to pray. So this section of the Sermon on the Mount, really the middle of it, the heart of it, is a magnificent gift when you think about it. Because it is Jesus' most direct and practical instruction to us on how to pray. And so, Lord willing... We'll be taking our time moving through it slowly. Today, we'll make two points. They're there on the outline in the back of your bulletin. The pagans and the preface. (laughs) So first then, the pagans. This is Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling. The word's actually like stammering. Do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. So, hypocrites within the religious community have already been addressed. We saw that last week, right? They look, they desire to look anyway, pious before others when they pray. But pagans, Jesus says, they have another problem. They babble. They heap up words, thinking that'll enable their prayers to be heard. Now, before we look at what Jesus has in view. Let's say what he's not condemning. Say what he's not condemning. He's not condemning praying for a sustained period of time. He himself did that. In Luke chapter 6, he prays all night long. He's also not condemning any form of repetition. In the garden, he asked three times for the cup that he was facing to be removed from him. Nor is he condemning persistence or endurance in prayer. Right? Remember, he told the parable of the persistent widow to remind us never to give up petitioning God. What he is critiquing is a kind of praying that reflects a pagan view of God. Nothing unveils a person's vision of God more than their prayers. Then then you can find out who God is. And pagans babble, thinking that they will be heard for their many words, much talk in some translations. That is, they heap up phrases, they engage in meaningless repetition, thinking that the length or the sheer volume of words will move the hand of their God or their God's. And so prayer in this conception, right, is a kind of magic. It's a a kind of mechanical incantation. It's a technique, and if you follow the technique, you'll get the results, purportedly. If repeated often enough, we can provoke or move the deity to act. So Jesus is condemning the use of length of babbling, of repetition in prayer as a form of manipulation. 
a form of manipulation. The idea that the longer the prayer, somehow the more effective it is. I think we moderns tend to do this with numbers. I will often hear, you know, there are, there are a lot of people praying for X, therefore the outcome's got to be good. Eh. Look, if you were in the eighth, Israel in the 8th century B.C., you would trade the whole nation praying for you to have Elijah pray for you. Even the 7,000 that didn't bow the knee to Baal, you just want Elijah. So I'm not sure the numbers matter. It's, of course, good to have lots of people praying. But we can slip into this kind of paganism very easily. Often in Jesus' time and before, this involved whipping oneself into some kind of frenzy, seeking some kind of uh, ecstasy, some sort of emotional, psychic breakthrough. The prophets of Baal pray this way in 1 Kings, for hours limping around, cutting themselves, calling upon their God. They had these little rituals that they thought would get the God's attention. It turns prayer into magic. Prayer that now engages the mouth, maybe even the body, but it doesn't engage the mind. And so, to pray this way is to forget the exhortation in the book of Ecclesiastes, which says, God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This, This form of pagan praying stems from a pagan view of God, a God who's impersonal, who cannot be addressed in a loving relationship of communion, but who rather bizarrely is impressed with our wordiness or our bloviating. Or if maybe you think of God, or we think of God, or someone who prays this way as personal, but it turns out that he's a person way too much like us. He ends up being a God who is like mortal man, who needs to be informed and advised and pressured. He needs to have his arm twisted. He has maybe a kind of weak, vacillating nature like some earthly fathers do. We have to show him we're really, 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 really serious. We are not to be like the pagans, verse 8 says. And here's this grand statement. Now, we often hear it and we think, well, why even pray then? Which is a fine question to ask here. But Jesus means it as a great kind of liberation. You are not to be like the pagans because your father knows what you need before you even ask. Notice, it's not as our corrupt minds always seem to want to say, your father knows what you need, therefore why should we ask? The logic goes like this. Your father knows your needs before you ask. Like asking is expected to occur. But the whole framing of prayer is different in this world. Having a father who already knows our needs, not an ignorant, unsympathetic, reluctant pagan deity, this takes all the pressure off of praying. Right? It certainly precludes the need to babble. It changes the whole nature of prayer. God does not need to be informed. He's up to date. He's up to date. He's a very good theologian, very good pastor. Knows everything. So what does it mean? It means prayer now becomes communion. It becomes communion, not hectoring. 
So it's just like a well-ordered family, right? A father would know what his children need. He wouldn't want the children coming to him 57 times a day asking for the thing. But he would want them to ask. He would take delight in them asking. It would show their confidence and their trust and their love for their father. So it is with our father. The fact that he knows before you ask changes and liberates you to pray. It turns out that today, what is it, July 18th? Today, the collect, the short prayer in the Book of Common Prayer, which I urge you all to get. For this Sunday, let me read it to you. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not and for our blindness we cannot ask. Right? Through the worthiness of your son. So in other words, we say to God, look, you know, you know our weaknesses, you know our needs before we ask, and you know that everything we're asking for you we're unworthy of. And in many cases, we're too blind to even ask for the right things. But give us those things, Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer that sort of unpacks the theology of what Jesus is saying in our text. So that's the pagans. Don't be like them. The second point, then, is the preface. And here we come to the Lord's Prayer proper, which, Lord willing, we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. I want to go slowly through the Lord's Prayer um, for a number of reasons. We pray it here every week. I don't want it to become rote and mindless. So it's good to stop and walk through it. So verse 9, having a father who's already inclined to you. This then, Jesus says, this, not the pagan way. This is how you should pray. We often forget that, right? The Lord's Prayer is given in contrast to pagan babbling. We get the Lord's Prayer, really the disciples' prayer here, right? The prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This is an actual prayer to use. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, when you pray, say this. Meaning, say these very words. And of course, it's also a general pattern, a guide for prayer as well. Sort of guardrails for prayer. Scaffolding by which you can you know, construct the building of prayer. And the Lord's Prayer has this, it's very simple. It has a simplicity and a clarity, which is the exact opposite of pagan prayer. It's really quite extraordinary, right? In a broad, sweeping way, you can cover everything that needs to be said in prayer in 30 seconds. That's how long it takes to pray it. And before we're done, you're going to see that it is utterly comprehensive. Its compact genius has been acknowledged by the church from the beginning. Tertullian, a second century church father, third, around 200 AD, he called the Lord's Prayer an abridgment or a summary of the entire gospel. And Cyprian, a little later, Bishop of Carthage, called it a compendium of heavenly doctrine. It's a little mini systematic book of theology, condensed. And if you look at the prayer, which we pray weekly, right? 
It consists of a preface followed by six petitions. Today we're only going to look at the preface, which is Our Father in Heaven. It's four words, so I'm going to make three points. The Father, Heaven, and Our. The Father, Heaven, and Our. So, first thing, we pray to our Father. Now, while the idea of God as Father is in Judaism, you can find it there. It's in the Old Testament. It occurs about 14 times in the Old Testament, the calling of God Father. But this concept comes to its full blossoming, right? It's full glorious fruition in Jesus, who calls God his Father some 60 times. Right? Get that. 14 times in the whole Old Testament, 60 times in Jesus' earthly ministry. And he always addresses God as Father when he's praying. He has no other designation by which he approaches God. He even uses the Aramaic word, Abba, a term which, by the way, probably does not carry, does not carry the casual, informal meaning of the modern word, Daddy. Right? That's a little too cute and too casual, but the term Abba does, in fact, denote intimacy. Indeed, in his greatest hour of need, in Gethsemane, in the garden, Jesus combines the terms and says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as I will. And here in our text, then, This one, remarkably, tells us that we can address God this way. Jesus has this unique relationship with God the Father. He's the eternal Son. And here, he is inviting you, he's inviting us, into this circle of intimacy that exists between the Father and the Son in the Godhead. This is really important to get. It's packed into this word Father. We often think prayers about God and us. We pray to God, God answers us. It is not about that. It's about you participating in the love and in the communion and in the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity. So that just as the Son calls the Father, Father, you can, in and through the Son, call that same Father, Father. Prayer is an invitation into the light and into the life and into the communion of God himself. And this preface implies, it teaches us, that you, that we, are children. We are sons in the Son. Right? He's the, he is a natural son, an eternal son. We are adopted sons. Right? Galatians 3, you are all children of God, sons of God through faith in Christ. So Jesus' father, his father in a unique way, is nevertheless now, Through his mediation, your father. Your father. And we must never lose sight of, of the joy, the sheer wonder of this. I love how John, in his first epistle, like puts a word of overawed amazement. He says, behold. Meaning, look with amazement at what manner of love the father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. We're so familiar with it 
that the glory and the luster is rubbed off. And, that, and John goes on to say, and that is what you are. Behold, look at this. And, you know, at his resurrection, as he's ascending into heaven, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, right, go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. And this ascension of the Son gives us this high privilege of calling God Father. The the title, the designation, the name Father, carries within it all of our assurance, our full assurance. It's to bolster your confidence. It conveys God's undying love for you, his goodness, his condescension, his pity, his protection, his tender discipline when needed. Right? This word alone, just this word, Father, makes Christian prayer uniquely Christian and uniquely comforting because he's the Father of mercies and he's the God of all comfort. Now, to be sure, right, praying to the Father is a form of shorthand. Right? We know it needs to be said. We know from the rest of Scripture that prayer, I just alluded to it, is fully Trinitarian. We pray in the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Right? To pray is to be lifted up into the life of the triune God. The Spirit intercedes on earth, in you, in us, the text says, with groanings too deep for words. And the Son ever lives above to intercede for you in heaven. Think of how beautiful this is, right? The Spirit intercedes in you on earth. The Son intercedes for you in heaven. Presenting our petitions before the face of the Father. And thus we too, in the Spirit, through the Son, cry out, Abba, Father. There is a sense in which this whole Trinitarian mystery terminates on the Father. The the whole Sermon on the Mount, one scholar said, could be titled, What It Means to Call God Father. It means to be poor in spirit. It means the Beatitudes. It It means all of these things Jesus has said about the Torah. It means to pray this way. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, famously said this, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, Packer says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge He continues, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as father. If if it's not this thought that prompts and controls worship and praying and the whole outlook on life, Packer says, then we don't understand Christianity very well at all. Because the whole faith is condensed into this one word, Father. So the second point here, 
is heaven. Some Christians grasp the idea pretty well that God is our Father, right? That Jesus calls us his friends. But when they pray, there's a kind of casualness or an over-familiarity or a distinct lack of awe and reverence. In our time, it's important to note this, right? In the last generation or so, maybe from the 60s onward, right? This has been seen as a sign of real intimacy, real authenticity, right? This being informal. You know the John Denver song, I talk to God and listen to the casual reply. That sums up an ethos of praying. But this father is our father in heaven. And that speaks of his transcendence, of his infinite distance from any human father. Right? He is both like a human father and radically unlike human fathers. The early fathers, no pun intended, of the church used to say that when we talk about God, we talk about likeness, a likeness between God and creatures in the context of an infinite difference between God and creatures. And if we don't hold these things together, we end up with an over-familiar God or an overly distant God. Our Father dwells in transcendent glory in heaven, infinitely different from any human father. In heaven denotes his sovereign majesty, but also his unbounded power and ability to answer our prayers, to hear and answer us. It's precisely God as the transcendent one that enables him to be near and hear. Our Father is in heaven. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, I want to tease this out just a little bit. God, who is everywhere to be sure, right? you might be thinking, what does this mean? Isn't God everywhere? God is everywhere to be sure. But he dwells uniquely in heaven. And by heaven here, we mean a created realm. We're not talking about the atmospheric heavens. We're not talking about the cosmic heavens, the sprawling galaxies. We're talking about what the Bible refers to as heaven itself. A created but presently veiled realm. God's personal throne room, irradiated with the presence of his glory. Flooded with the immediate light of his face. Filled, filled with innumerable angels in festal gathering. We saw this in the New Testament lesson. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. The dwelling place of the spirits of the departed saints made righteous. The place where Jesus is. And where God our Father, the judge of all, holds court and is worshipped. Right? The place into which we are lifted up in Christ. Our Father is in. Notice the word in. It's a spatial word. It's a location word. Right? We need to recover this idea that heaven is a created realm. It's a place. A unique place. A created, currently veiled realm where Jesus is. Our Father is in heaven in a unique way. And this means he's not to be trifled with. Our God is in heaven, the psalmist says. He does whatever he pleases. And from that height, 
from the highest heavens, from his heavenly temple, the omniscient and omnipotent one reigns. And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Heaven is an eschatological place. It's the place where God, it's the place where the glorious Christ is. It's the place from which the spirit, the gift of the age to come comes. Prayer then is presented there, in that spot, in that location to this one. Yes, you can pray anywhere, of course. But all prayer through the mediation of Christ and the Spirit is presented in that spot, in that place, in that location. In the language of the book of Revelation, right, we see these four living creatures and the 24 elders. And they fall down before the throne, before the Lamb, each of them holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which we are told are the prayers of the saints. In the Spirit, through the exalted Christ, we live and dwell and pray there. So to say then, our Father in heaven, our heavenly Father, is to confess our heavenly mindedness. It is to confess our heavenly citizenship, our heavenly treasure, our heavenly destiny. Our heavenly inheritance. Praying to this one is to create people who diffuse the very fragrance of heaven itself in the earth. If then you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above. Notice where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Already you are raised up in heart and mind to heaven. We pray to our Father, the King of Heaven, the Judge of all. So you have to keep the combination in mind. This this beautiful combination of our Father in Heaven is, is wonderfully captured by our opening hymn this morning, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. In the third verse, it says this, Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, Thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O help us to see, tis only the splendor of light that hideth thee. There you get both ideas, the intimacy of the term father, but the father who who dwells in unapproachable glory and light, before whose face the heavenly hosts have to veil their eyes. That's our father in heaven. Third, finally here, The word our, our Father, our Father in heaven. Now, there there may be religions or forms of spirituality which can be transacted by individuals and their gods apart from others. Maybe out in nature, maybe on the golf course. But Christianity is not one of them. It's intrinsically communal. It's a corporate thing. There's just no severing for us Christ from the church. There's no merely private Christian faith. Thus, Jesus did not leave us the my father. He left us the our father. And there's all the difference in the world between those two conceptions. 
us, we, our, together. Right? The Lord loves the gates of Zion, Psalm 87, more than all the dwelling places in Israel. Right? you got a house over there, and this guy's got a house over there, and that guy's got a house over there. <coughs> God loves your houses. God's blessing is on your house. But he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places in Israel, right? It doesn't matter whether you have Zoom connection or not from there. He loves the gates of Zion better than all the other places, right? Because of this ourness, this usness, this weeness is basic to Christianity. Notice this, right? Of course, this makes the prayer especially fitting in corporate worship. But notice how these pronouns persist in the plural all the way through the prayer. Our Father, give us our daily bread, right? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Even if we want to use it as a pattern for your private prayer, which you should, we can never lose sight of the community or the needs of the family of God. Even in private, right, we are bound to the communion of the saints. So to pray a right, to pray this prayer, is to love the church, to love her gatherings. It's fitting, right? Because in the church, what's Jesus doing? Well, he's creating a new and indestructible heavenly family. There's not going to be any marriage. I've mentioned this a lot, right? There's not going to be any biological families in the age to come. But there will be the church, the our, the plural, the we of which the Christian speaks. Remember, the one who taught us, this is an astonishing thing. The one who taught us our father, who taught us this family prayer, is the same one who said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my brother and my sister. So this is but the preface to this extraordinary prayer. I've mentioned in the past here that John Calvin says prayer is the principal exercise of faith. If you've never read the chapter, it's in book three of the Institutes. It's very readable that Calvin has on prayer there. I think it's chapter 20. I highly recommend it to you. It's a very convicting, challenging, transformative kind of chapter. But he says that prayer is the principal exercise of faith. It is what faith does. And thus the Lord's Prayer shows us how to principally act. It's not a component in the Christian life, like, oh, I've got this component, that component, and I put my Lord's Prayer component. This is the principal action of faith. This is what faith does. This is how it acts. It prays to this Father who is in this place, that is in heaven itself, with the community of saints spanning heaven and earth. So let us pray then, not as the pagans, but in terms of this divinely given, simple, elegant pattern, This, then, is the beginning. This is the root. This is the foundation of how you should pray. Start by saying this. Our Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. Amen.